Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. I remember one night sitting in a tent, just listening to the trees creak and crack, you know, hearing branches crash to the ground and hoping it just doesn't fall on you. Riding out California's storms without a home. It's Thursday, January 12th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, saving an indigenous language in Alaska, and a conversation about preventing gun violence in Milwaukee where homicides have doubled. But first, the atmospheric rivers inundating California continue their onslaught, with more back-to-back storms on the way. At least 17 people have died in the storms over the last two weeks. That includes at least two homeless people living at an encampment in Sacramento County, who died when high winds toppled trees under their tents. California has the country's largest population of people living on the streets, And we're going to check in now on how they're coping with the extreme weather. Joe Smith is program director at the Hope Cooperative. They provide some overnight housing, but not long-term housing like shelters. And he told Robin Young that the community around that encampment in Sacramento County is shaken. They are devastated, not only in the community of people that are living together outside, but also the the service providers and nonprofits and citizens that come out to take care of these folks. Um, everybody was just shocked and saddened. Yeah, well, and uh, people are remembering them, Stephen Sorensen and Rebecca Rode. Uh, what, what are the big problems here? Are people not wanting to leave encampments because they have the belongings, the few belongings they have, and maybe pets? Or can they not leave? What What's the biggest problem? I think there's it's a combination of both. Um, there there really is nowhere for folks to go right now. There's not enough uh, shelter beds or transitional housing or or anything for folks to move into. So they're doing uh, what they need to do to survive, and uh, that means you know establishing a home somewhere either maybe along our our vast riverway or along uh, the freeway and rail system here. Yeah. Uh, you've told us that your group, the Hope Cooperative, normally has capacity for about 50 people. As we said, this would be temporary uh, shelter. But because of this incredible weather, your capacity is for 100. You've moved it up, jamming people in, I'm presuming. Uh, who's coming to the doorstep? Well, uh, we're seeing a lot of folks who are washed out, you know, everything they had. The, the rain is one thing, but we've had some really serious wind problems And so it's basically if you had a tent or anything like that, it's Mm. pretty much been torn apart. So we allow for folks to bring their their four-legged family members too. We get them dried up and and fed and keep them warm, Mm. uh, at least until this this really harsh weather event is over. Well, you know it's about to get worse potentially with so many more storms rolling in. What are you thinking? I'm thinking we're going to do what we can. and sustain it as long as we have to. You know, Joe, I could be wrong, but I thought I heard a catch in your voice. Do I understand that this is familiar to you? It, it is familiar to me. I, uh, 
I experienced homelessness here in Sacramento from uh, 2005 to 2011. And during that time, um, there was some really bad storms coming through. So it kind of takes me back to, to what it was like to try and survive outside during those times. And, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to uh, lessen the experience that I had years ago. Well, if you don't mind. Uh, I don't mind. Yeah. I don't mind. What What is it like? I mean, people might be thinking it's, you know, rain. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, all you really have is, is the little bit of clothes that you have. So if you're lucky enough to have a, a shelter or someone somewhere to get out from under the rain, whenever you have to try to go outside, whatever you're in ends up soaked and with nowhere to dry it. And you have to go outside. Um, at some point you have to eat at night. Things become particularly scary. Uh, remember one night sitting in a tent with, uh, with my partner and, uh, we were along a river trail, just listening to the trees uh, creak and crack, uh, blowing in the wind above you, hoping, you know, hearing branches crash to the ground and hoping it just doesn't fall on you. It's a very intense, scary place to be. Yeah. And as we know, it, um, it can be fatal. It can certainly be fatal. Um we're also known as the city of trees and uh, we've been in a drought for many years. And so now uh, the ground is absolutely saturated. The wind is blowing and trees are falling down all over the place. The, the building we use is a, it used to be a museum. It's a nice solid cement building, you know, with <laughs> steel running through the walls. I mean, it's, it's, it's safe. We need probably a hundred more of these all over just this region, let yet California. Are you saying you're using that now? You're putting some of the homeless people there that's, now? We're we're repurposing, right, an old piece of city property. That's what we use for our respite center. Wow. Well, it sounds like that's a thought for future uh, solutions to this problem. Yeah, this is really the first time something like this has been utilized in Sacramento for for more than just a few nights. So hopefully it's a trend. That's Joe Smith, Program Director of the Hope Cooperative in Sacramento, California, helping people experiencing homelessness while they're experiencing these incredible storms. Joe, thank you so much and best to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. After the break, there are dozens of indigenous languages in Alaska, and all of them are endangered. We'll hear about efforts to keep one of them alive. Stick around. The pandemic took a toll on so many things, and on the Alaskan island of Kodiak, it severed the ties indigenous people have with their language, Alutic. Half of the remaining speakers of Alutic have died since 2020. Now, new speakers are trying to become fluent in the language and pass along its distinct culture and worldview to future generations. KTOO's Claire Strempel reports. At the Shunak Tribe's Language House, everything is a lesson. Catching up on gossip, making a grocery list, or washing the dishes. No one lives here full-time. 
But the Shunak tribe uses a federal grant to pay a group of language apprentices and mentors to master Alutic. Heritage languages are so important, and when you learn them, it's like, okay, I'm part of the crew saving it now. Stevie Fretz works for the tribe and is also a language mentor. There's no like, yeah, I learn a little Alutic on weekends when I can. All of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, my language, I have to save it. I have to do everything I can. Kodiak is home to a movement to bring the Aleutic language back into daily use. For more than 100 years, American schools and governments suppressed the language and punished children for speaking it. Now, Fretz says, there are only a few elders who speak it fluently. Most speakers have only gone through some basic language classes at the local university. There's been a lot of people that have gone through the programs, but there's not a lot of people you can, like, have a conversation with. The tribe estimates there are now only 17 elders who are fluent Alutic speakers. But the Shunak tribe isn't giving up. It's moving forward, says Haley Thompson, who administers the federal grant. We have a lot of motivation to learn Alutic. People want Alutic preschools and Alutic language classes at the high school and Alutic language classes at the college. But the problem is, is we don't have the teachers to teach those classes and workshops. Thompson says part of the tribe's goal is to train fluent speakers who can, in turn, teach the language and build on the foundation left by its elders. The next wave of what it looks like is building resources, archiving things that we know we're going to need, spending the time that we know we can get with elders. That's what it looks like right now, just cherishing all the resources we can get before we know that they're gone. The stakes are high, but the rewards are immense, building fluency to be able to teach the next generation of Alutic speakers. Put your little Alutic hats on tighter. Turn your little Alutic ears up. Turn your Alutic voices up. Let's try that again. About a dozen preschoolers are enrolled in the Alutinkut Child Care Center. They learn numbers in Alutic and Alutic versions of popular kids' songs. There probably won't be any birth speakers left by the time these kids are older, but the language movement is working to ensure they'll have teachers. An Alutic language program exists at the Kodiak College and at the high school. The tribe hopes to put 18 people through its program at the Language House over the course of its three-year grant. And then can you say, <laughs> Learners meet up with elders at the museum once a week. I wouldn't say it that way. <laughs> Three of the elders that used to be at these sessions died during the pandemic. But the museum recorded them, so now others can hear their stories. Oh, I love speaking my language. I feel complete. Florence Pestrikoff didn't grow up speaking Alutic, even though most people in her village did. American missionaries and schools enforced strict English-only policies for years. Parents like hers encouraged English to protect their children. In the past, it was people were ashamed of the language. It's sad. Really sad. For the last couple of decades, Pestrikoff has been an active speaker and teacher. She answers her cell phone in Alutic and speaks it with her husband. And that's the vision of the language movement, to have the language in use, at home, in the grocery store, and on the street, and to carry the values that are embedded in the words. Uh, We never say goodbye 
there is no goodbye in Alutech. You say, uh, I will see you later. I like that. Future Alutech speakers will see their ancestors reflected in their words for generations to come. For Here and Now, I'm Claire Strempel. Coming up, another lasting impact of the pandemic? Many cities have seen an increase in murders since 2020. We'll hear from someone trying to reverse that trend in Milwaukee after the break. marked the third year in a row that Milwaukee set a new record for homicides. Its murder rate has doubled in the past few years. One of the people hoping to break that cycle is Deshaun Ewing, the city's Family Injury and Violence Prevention Coordinator. He spoke to Scott Tong. What we have realized is that a lot of this has been exasperated by what we went through with the pandemic. Um, And I know that's probably been said a million times, but I think it continues needing to be said, is that when the pandemic struck, there were many things that went up in numbers, including violence in the city, and that's nationally. Uh, So it's not just a Milwaukee issue, this is a national issue that we here in Milwaukee are hoping to address um, through some neighborhood-based initiatives. Mm -hmm. Now, as you say, this does coincide with homicide numbers rising nationwide, especially during the pandemic. But Milwaukee's 95% increase dwarfs the numbers of the country as a whole. So is, is something unfortunately, specifically happening in Milwaukee? I won't say it's specific to Milwaukee. Um, I believe that we are just really seeing the outcry of a lack of support and services that have been years in the making. Um, Because I I believe what people don't want to recognize is that prior to the pandemic, we actually saw a decrease in violence in the city of Milwaukee and Mm -hmm. homicides for about three years running. Um, So there were some things that were happening and strategies that were in place that were working. But then when you see the harm that was caused by the pandemic, the lack of social emotional supports, the lack of conflict resolution skills in some cases, um, and also the rise in accessibility to guns. Can you tell us a little bit more about what was working? Areas of where we do conflict resolution, where we do have individuals that are in spaces of our community that are going out and about and, and working to resolve conflicts prior to incidents happening, and even in some cases after incidents happening, to keep retaliation um, at a minimum or not to happen at all. Mm -hmm. And how about policies on the availability of guns or the funding of law enforcement? What's happening on those fronts? Well, that is a great question. When it comes to the availability of guns, that legislation, those laws um, often are not within the jurisdiction of cities. This is something that is on a federal and state level. Mm. And so, again, we need to make sure that if individuals within our federal government and our state government are really serious about reducing violence in their cities, especially our urban cities. But we also want to make sure that our police are there when necessary, but they often are in a reactionary role. And also building that partnership between community-based organizations, even organizations that work within community spaces, that the police can partner with them to bring information, to bring education before mm-hmm. incidents happen. Yeah, I have read that the um, uh, police department is down something like 200 officers. So, you know, having funding for that certainly seems like that's part of the, the picture. 
Uh, Deshaun, can I ask if there is one case that has hit you particularly hard? I, I read about a horrific news item of a 10-year-old boy accused of shooting his mother back in November. Uh, yes. I mean, every case hits me. And yes, that, that situation is very tragic. Again, accessibility to firearms. Uh, but when it comes to just the issues of making sure our city is whole, our city is healing, because you also have to look at the systemic damage that has been done over the years, decades, centuries. If we're not speaking to that and we're not doing things to help correct those wrongs, we're only doing more harm and continuing. We will continue to see what we're seeing right now. Yeah. And finally, I know this is another kind of personal question. Are there days where you ask yourself, is this problem too big for us, too big for me, too big for anyone? I think if anyone is honest with themselves, they do ask, am I being effective? Am I helping to make change? I don't necessarily see it as a too big issue um, because I believe if we galvanize the resources that we really are truly committed to changing our community, it's going to happen. It can happen. Um, I see glimmers of hope every day when I work with partners and we convene and we talk and we speak and we go out into community and we meet with community residents. So those are the days when I realize there's nothing too big for us. It's just about are we going to be dedicated to make the actions happen, to do the things we need to do, to do the community place-based organizing, resource gathering that is going to bring the change about. That's Deshaun Ewing. Family Injury and Violence Prevention Program Coordinator with the City of Milwaukee. Deshaun, best of luck to you, and thank you. And thank you for having me on. Head to hereandnow.org for more stories, including a look at canine influenza, as more dog owners report their pets getting the flu. And a look at the toll that the current wave of COVID is taking on China. The government says that since December, when these COVID restrictions were lifted, that only 37 people have died. Our reporting, which is based on satellite imagery and interviews with funeral home workers and residents that have been to funeral homes and these satellite images that show traffic around these funeral homes, show that that number can't possibly be right. You can find that and a lot more at hereandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Lynn Menegon, Shiko Thayuri, and Hafsa Qureshi. Our editors today are Todd Bunt, Gabe Bullard, and Peter O'Dowd. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Theme music by me, Mike, and Max Liebman. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.